Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, it's time for Customer Experience Radio. Brought to you by Heineken Company, real estate advisors specialized in corporate relocation. Now, here's your host, Jill Heineck. Good afternoon and welcome to this very special edition of Customer Experience Radio. I'm your host, Jill Hynek. I'm a business owner, real estate advisor, and customer experience enthusiast. I'm super excited to have our guest on the show today, the culture hacker himself, Mr. Shane Green. Hey, Jill. How are you? I am great. I'm so happy you're here. I want to let everybody know that you are a world-renowned keynote speaker, author, television personality, we'll get to that later, and (laughs) consultant to global Fortune 500 leaders on customer experience and organizational culture. Shane draws on his foundation at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company and his work in multiple industries to help clients transform customer experiences by improving employee habits and mindsets. As president and founder of SG. EI. Shane leads a team of professionals who inspire iconic brands like the NBA, Westfield, Foot Locker, NetJets, uh, W Hotels, MGM, and BMW to pre-program their employee experience in order to create loyal customers and create raving fans. I love that Shane has developed a reputation as one of the world's premier culture hackers. Think about that. How many of those do you know? (laughs) This is based on his ability to understand and reprogram outdated thinking, mindsets, values, and beliefs which define the environment in which people work. His experience in hospitality, automotive, retail, and professional sports has led to significant customer experience transformations that are emulated around the world. Fun fact, Shane was the star of Resort Rescue where he'd go in and turn ailing hotels and resorts around from failing to fabulous. Hi, Shane. Hey, how are you? Wow, that, that, that's quite a lot. I'm impressed. I could just sit back and listen all day. So where do, where do you begin? <laughs> well, you tell me. I'd lo- we'd love to know a little bit about you and how, you know, where your journey, how your journey has gotten you to this point. Great. Well, uh, I, there'll be a little accent that'll come in and out, but I'm originally from <laughs> New Zealand. Came over at 21. Uh, I was very fortunate. I joined the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company for about 10 years, um, and, and I... They, they turned me into a gentleman. They have, you know, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. So I like right. to think they did a good job. Um, and from there, uh, at the end of my time with them, I actually started my first business, which was a training company. Uh, and it was all about, let's deliver customer service, customer service. Um, what I realized, and again, I think it's no shocking to everyone out there, when you just do service training, but you don't address supervisors, managers, executive thinking, and when you think about service, people often get confused. They think customer service is customer experience. Right. Customer service is actually just the interaction. The experience is the journey. So as we started to look at that, instead of just looking at interactions of service, we recognized there was multiple interactions of service in this journey and that you couldn't just target one if you wanted to create, at that time, I guess it was more about loyal customers. What I think today is advocates people that are out there shouting your name, talking all of that good stuff. So it's really been an evolution over the years. Um, In hospitality, when we talk about a hotel, we always talk about the four Ps, product, place, process, people. Um, And and I think what we've learned and hopefully everyone learns is that when it comes to great customer experience, your people are absolutely integral to that. And so really, as we've evolved, what I've found is that I've been, as I've guided companies on customer experience, we've ended up always talking about people, people as culture. Um, and so that's where the sort of transformation from being very focused on just customer experience, we actually focus a lot more on employee experience today. EX drives CX is what I kind right. of say a lot. Um, and as a result, we wanted to start to understand how to evolve cultures for great customer service organizations. We got to study and research some. And we got to work with a lot of other great brands. And, you know, while we are 10 years ago, I was mapping the customer journey. A lot of what we do today is map the employee journey, which I think is very relevant in our times today. There's a lot of stresses going on and a lot of things. So I, I, I work with so many different companies. And what, what is always amazing to me is they, they'll tell me they want a great customer experience, but they haven't got a great customer experience strategy or they want a great employee experience or great culture, but they don't have a strategy for it. So we've really kind of honed in on those areas. So tell me, um, were you working for the Ritz those 10 years when you were in New Zealand? 
No, so that, that was my first job, real job, when I was out here. Um, when I was in New Zealand, I paid my way through college, getting into hotels, right. but it was pretty rough around the edges. So uh, I was very fortunate with Ritz Carlton. I was in Marina del Rey, but then I was uh, had the opportunity to go through to Asia and open up some hotels over there. So you really got to see um, customer service at its best, but more importantly, the understanding of the guest journey. I, I, right. There was some Gallup research that you may have seen, and again, it's a while ago. But they talked about in a, in a guest's one-night stay at a hotel, there was something just over 1,073 touch points. And that's, you know, from the time they picked up the phone. What was most fascinating and most important, I think, for all, pe- all businesses to remember, of those 1,073 touch points, five defined the experience, which means five touch points, the check-in, the room service or food option, uh, the reservation process the bed and room when they first walked into it actually defined whether or not someone had a good experience. And so what I think is most interesting is that we talk about a lot is, and again, Daniel Kahneman's work, if you haven't read it out there or haven't seen his TED Talk, please make sure you do it. Fast and Slow is essential reading. But understanding this whole idea that to create a great experience, people remember snapshots of their journey, not the whole thing. So it's not like it's a video. So there's certain moments in the customer experience journey that really make a huge difference. And what we realize now, it's the same in the employee journey as well. So, you know, going from hospitality, uh, you know, I go back 20 years when people were all in about service. All right, can you come and help us with service? What we really need to be talking about today is the larger journey and how to really make each of those key moments fantastic. That's right. So, um, so what, what was your, so right after your, um, stint with the Ritz Carlton, which by the way, we had Horst on here last year when his, um, I mean, I got to spend time with Horst in Asia. He, he was literally like my, uh, you know, my, so my, my Uber mentor. I mean, so incredible. And literally we didn't have enough time because yeah. we were just <laughs> on and, and he was incredible. Um, so that is a gift, right. To, to be able to, learn under him um so once you so were you then did you go to another resort after that or did you just start your consultancy from there no it was funny so i was um and again i was i was i was a lot younger back then but i, I realized um weren't we all <laughs> yeah and then again i i had this epiphany actually it was I, I had to go back to new zealand for a period my father was very sick and i, I had this epiphany i'm like and he always worked for someone else for his whole life. And, I, and he was like, you know, try and work for yourself. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own business. Um, and at the time I go, well, wait up. What do I know anything to do? I, I know a little bit about hotels. I know customer service. What I learned through um, opening hotels in Asia was I was pretty good standing up and speaking in front of large crowds. So they kind of like that. Um, and I was single and could travel anywhere. And I said, all right, if that's the foundation of a business, let's go for it. Um, and I was very fortunate. I wrote a couple of programs. I threw them around to friends in hospitality. I got picked up by a couple of hotels, but I got picked up by um, uh, Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Actually, to mm-hmm. be they contracted me as part of their new builds and transition team. And at that time, we were opening W's, Rest, Westons, um, Sheratons. And then from there, we developed for them uh, uh, a housekeeping ABCs, a housekeeping Sheraton Service mm-hmm. Promise, um, all of these programs. So it kept me in the hospitality space, but allowed me to kind of branch out. Um, and then I think, you know, that went on for a few years. The real significant one was when the MBA came to approach. They, and it's a fascinating business case. They asked us to think about a season ticket holder experience. And they, they've got some really interesting research that said the reason people are season ticket holders is not just to watch the game of basketball. The game of basketball is kind of the catalyst for an experience. But when they researched, they found that uh, people that took their children, they didn't, go, they didn't really care about the game. What they cared about was connecting with their kids. Uh, business people didn't really care about the game. Uh, it's good if they win, but they wanted to close and network for business. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we mapped all these different ways to create great experiences for these different type of fans and then we built training for it. And that was sort of that first venture into realizing it's not just about it's great service and if you deliver it, it's fine. It's about what were the key moments? And if you've ever been a season ticket holder, um, you'll know something like they'll deliver a jersey to you in your seat. Well, they'll do that when you're a business person and you tell them that you're bringing your biggest client to the game and they suddenly turn up with a jersey for them. 
that's a great moment. Right. And that's what really every business out there, you know, that, that want to make that makes customer experience a priority just has to remember it's all about creating great moments. What are you doing to do that moment that people talk about and rave about? I love that. I love that. So let's talk um, as we delve forward. Let's talk a little bit about defining culture hacker. Yep. So, it, so for me, what it was, is, as I said, we really started to understand the, the part that people play in creating great customer experience. At the Ritz-Carlton, um, we used to have a saying, there's, a, there's an old hospitality axiom that says people with a great attitude give great service, people with a bad attitude give bad service. Nothing shocking about that. But what I realized is attitude was everything and we've all been customers out there where we might have had really good food, the setting was perfect, the place was great, the product was at, and then you interacted with someone with a crappy attitude and they ruined it. And that hasn't changed. That, that has remained. No, it hasn't. It, 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 it's still there. But what I would always look at, I'd go, wait up. Why is that one person so miserable that they want to make my life or experience miserable? Mm-hmm. And I would step back and I'd say, yes, there are certain things in people's lives, but I don't people believe people come to work to do a bad job. What they do is they come from home, they come into work, and the environment is not one that makes them or inspires them to want to do something. Right. And so they've got a crappy leader, a manager that disrespects them, uh, a company that doesn't care for them. All of these things feed in. So at the end of the day, the employee goes, why should I care? Why should I put my energy into this? So from this idea of attitude, I really started to study culture because everyone was throwing this idea of culture around. And what I realized is culture is just the collective hearts and minds of a group of people. So you have cultures in every form of life. And what you realize is in the workplace, Culture is the collective mindset. Every, some people have a bad day every now and again. That, that's human. But what you're looking for is when the whole group is having a bad day because the environment and the leader and all of that is just not nice, you'll never deliver great experience. And so what we looked at was we started to map all the touch points and mechanisms that impacted how once someone felt about coming to work from the time of their hiring process, their orientation day, their recognition program, no surprising, the single biggest person to impact that was the direct manager. So that really led us into a lot of stuff about uh, leadership development and that. But the whole idea that I started to find fascinating was how do you change and evolve culture? Because everyone would say it's impossible to change it. And I, I, I'm a bit of a change junkie. So I go, all right, if people can change, cultures change because mm-hmm. culture is people. Mm-hmm. So I'd start to then look at how companies were approaching change. And we were with a very, very uh, large sports entertainment company. I'll put it out there without naming names. Um, Sports entertainment company. Um, They got us in. We were working very much on the customer experience side of things. We would start to play with some stuff with people. And I remember the president of the company getting up and they did this annual meeting. There would have been five, 6,000 employees sitting there. I remember him getting up, and he's quite a famous person, saying, I just want to let everyone know that this culture is broken. You are going to change. We are going to fix this. We are going to have the best culture in the world. And you're all going to do that with me or else. And I was looked at the whole 5,000 people were stunned. People were frozen. First of all, most people don't know what culture is. So they're going, I don't know what I did wrong, but I didn't think it's me. But I just heard that I might be under threat. So the hair change, they freeze. And this is what happens in many organizations. So that's where the idea of culture hacker came. I'm always fascinated by the hacker community. I'm not a tech person. But when I, when I looked at it, what hackers do is they go in very quietly. They make changes for good and bad, but let's say for good. Um, they go and make changes. And then all of a sudden, the changes occurred without making a big deal about it. Right. And what I realized is that's one of the most important parts of significant change. Don't go in yelling, we're going to change, we're going to change, because people get scared. A lot of the things that we do is we go in behind the scenes, we manipulate mechanisms, we improve the recognition program, and we just say, this is about what you need and what we do. But we don't go out there and say big change. We say we do it really quietly. We can do things very quietly, create a significant impact on how people feel. And when people start to feel better, guess what? All of a sudden, the idea of customer experience, productivity, profitability, people will stick around longer. This is not rocket science. We have the numbers to prove this. 
And it all came back to they just created a better environment for their people to work in. I love that. And I love, I'd love to know a little bit more. Can you give in a good example of um, kind of a, it's a change management thing is what we're talking about, right? So, I mean, if we're getting down in the weeds with HR terms, yeah. um, but if, can you give an example of a team that you saw, you were able to see those results um, in a fairly, you know, quick fashion? Significant sort of, um, and again, I, I want to, I, I love that, you know, HR terms, some of those terms are horrible. So change management. Right. That means management by definition is control. Right. <laughs> trying to control change. I, I think about it's like performance management. I'm right. trying to control performance. Some of these terms are just ridiculous and outdated. Right. Um, so let's, you know, let's take it through the journey. Um, BMW is a great example. So BMW ultimately was, we wanted to improve our customer experience. And so they mapped the eight key moments in uh, the sale of a car. Now, again, it's changed these days, but let's go back five, 10 years. Going in to buy a car was one of the worst experiences. Yes. Because you knew you walk in the door and you'd get whacked by some sales dude who's trying to sell you everything. And this is one thing that I think the internet has changed. In the past, the salesperson had all the knowledge. Now the customers have knowledge. So getting inundated with someone trying to BS you is kind of annoying. It's, it's mm-hmm. frustrating these days. Um, so we went in and we started to look at, they looked at all these touch points and they listened to their customers. And, and let's talk BMW. BMW's uh, mantra is the ultimate driving machine. They believe they have the best car, arguably, probably the best car, but Mercedes and a lot of other um, you know, automobile manufacturers are pretty damn good. Um, but they had the ultimate driving machine. There was a belief that if you wanted the best car, you would buy a BMW and they didn't have to do anything else. You either want it or you don't. And, and so that was the, the way that they sold. It's like, you don't want this car? Go. Now, then there was a little company that came in, and again, you're looking 25 years ago, that literally changed luxury automobiles. It's called Lexus. Now, in case you don't know, Lexus is a Toyota on steroids. Mm-hmm. That's literally what it is. But what they did do is they said, let's not just focus on the car, let's focus on the experience. And all of a sudden, you'd go in there and they were very polite and you got a cup of coffee and all of a sudden, they changed the whole sales and service process. Mercedes-Benz, they all started to pay attention and go, how can a souped-up Toyota take our market share? Well, they did it for experience. So now, so BMW now goes, okay, we need to build a better experience. And what they do is through all these touch points, they started to realize, and if you go to some of the great BMW dealerships, and again, they're all franchised, but the really good ones, I mean, you can go in there and it's like a Starbucks. They have the coffee yeah. program. They've got, they got great food. They've got great Wi-Fi. We were all a part of mapping this great experience. But what we didn't see was the people. And so in the sales process, what we recognized is we were putting these really little cafes in there. We were making the dealerships look great. The processes were better. But they were still dealing with that salesperson, the traditional salesperson who just wanted to Quite honestly, it turns you off. Um, and so we started to look at that group and realized that it had to be a real mindset. The change had to come from within them to really finish what this experience was about. Now, we did a lot of training and, and sort of did that. And believe me, they made some great inroads. But at the same time, we took a, we took a, uh, we looked at what Apple was doing and we said, wow. You know what? The idea of genius. The number one thing that people said is they, they hate walking into a dealership and being accosted by the salesperson. So if you go to a BMW dealership today, you'll get to be... You, the first person to meet you is generally the BMW genius. And their job is not to sell you, but to educate you, let you experience, take you for drives, get you your coffee. It's a much more softer experience. What we did is we took those people often who'd worked in the BMW dealership but we looked at them in terms of personality, not experience. We started, we changed the hiring process. Hiring process is one of the quickest and best mechanisms to change a culture because you got it instead of just hiring the people for the most experience, the joke at BMW, I remember one day, the sales guy, one of their best sales guys um, got fired. The joke was the next day he was working at the car dealership next door selling Hondas. That, that, that you know what? Why? Because it was people are hired on experience. People always right. hire. They go, if you've got experience, I don't need to train you. It means you will be productive. One of the best ways to change culture is to hire the right personalities, the right style, people that will culturally fit. 
And so that's an example of one mechanism that we shifted the whole interview process. You have to just slow your roll, right? Slow your roll, higher, slower, fire, faster. But but don't hire. See, managers will hire on two reasons. The first reason is, do you have experience? They don't even right. look. Oh my God, they've got experience. Let's. Well, hire they're them. also hiring out of they're 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 dying, and they just need to fill a spot, right? That's and they don't want to train. They don't want to train, so you hire on experience. And then the second right. thing that they look for is, are you like me? If you're like me, then we're going to get on fine. <laughs> the problem is that's a very narrow focus. Organizations that do it well, they hire for the company. And they, you know, one of the best practices we see is that a selection process is by employees. The employees will do the interviewing, not the manager. They'll do the ultimate selection. Why? Because they're going to set them up for success more than anything else. So this is where we start to get into that. You can manipulate the mechanisms, change the hiring process, improve the recognition process. Um, All of these things impact how I feel about coming to work each day. Then ultimately, though, the thing you work on is the leadership development and, and that sort of programming. So, um, yeah, it, it's it sounds easy, but you have I think organizations have to be willing to invest. And ultimately, they go, I want just a better customer experience. And here are we coming in going, well, you're going to have to build a better employee experience first. And it's like, uh, why do I have to do that? People are evolving. I think people are learning um, that, that it is critical, but it is a process. It does. Yes, it does. It's simple, not easy, right? Isn't that the usual? Um, So I love this question you ask. Um, The question is not, do you have a culture? The question is, do you have a culture that will engage your employees, delight your customers and deliver the required returns to your shareholders or owners? I mean, that in and of itself is why isn't that plastered everywhere, right? In the leadership halls of the world, right? Yeah. so, So here's the piece. A lot of people will come to me and say, hey, can you help me build a culture? And I go, okay, but you understand you already have a culture. So if culture is the hearts and minds of your people, what you have to understand is whether you've formalized it or not, there is a culture there. They might hate you. They might uh, really do, you know, all of this comes in. So the question is, do you have a culture? You have a culture. What we do is we go in and we try and understand it. And again, you know, employee satisfaction data, pulse data, interviews, you, you, can, you can quickly learn the state of mind and the state of the hearts of the employees. It is not that difficult. It's amazing that still companies don't do more. Once you know the state, their hearts and minds, if it's not, if not feeling too good, well, what are the things that they should fix? So what's interesting is we'll then list, we've got this 12 core mechanisms that I looked in my book, and there's a lot of other little ones, but we sort of look at the big ones, of which pay is not one of them. Pay, once there's a certain threshold, becomes a non-motivator. Um, so what we do is we look at these mechanisms and we have employees rate, one, what is most important to them, and then second, how does the company do? And what we start to find is where are the areas that if we made a small area of improvement, they would start to feel better? Uh, recognition program. Let's Recognition is a simple one. We got pulled in, and again, a huge hospitality company, huge, 90,000 people. We go in there, and we're doing this, and we're doing our assessment. We're we're looking for the triggers, and recognition kept coming up. And we're like, wow, okay, recognition. So then we start to look into what is recognition. Uh, A year before we went in, they had implemented a new technology recognition platform, very popular today, and listen, we're, we're fans of it. But what had happened is when they rolled it out, they said, this platform is now how we recognize everybody. And each manager was given a certain amount of points and you could get a reward. And if you earned, you know, 1,000 points, you could buy a $20 Starbucks card. That's how they usually work. What had happened is when they rolled it out, they said the managers, hey, this is how you recognize from now on. So what had happened is that now, and by the way, all you have to recognize four people a month. So that was, they, they kind of mandated this in the rollout. Well, what the managers took that is, is great. I didn't have to do anything else. So their recognition now was just going into the tech and saying high five and thank you. Exactly your reaction there. We talk to employees and they say, they stop talking and saying thank you to us. They just send us this little high five that we get in an email. Damn. So they lost the heart of what recognition is, which is personal interaction. Right. The other thing that they forgot is they said, Okay, we've now given you a budget to, um, to, to a reward. So you get five points or 10 points and you build your bank up and you then cash it in. 
what they took away at the same time was um, their uh, monthly celebrations, uh, picnics, all the cool stuff that actually employees love, which was coming together and being social. So the second part of their system, and, and again, recognition was just tanked. They, they took away the interaction and social parts. And because people had to get a thousand points just to get a $20 Starbucks card, it took like six months. So you lost the immediacy of recognition. You lost the personalization of recognition and you lost the celebration of recognition. That's a great example how one mechanism, they did it with the right mind. They go, this is going to be better. We're going to be able to recognize more people. But they lost the true intent of what recognition is. And as a result, they invested, recognition plummeted, and all we had to do was turn back on the human qualities that had been lost. Um, so, so that's, you know, those are the type of things that you have to look at. It, it's not that uh, organizations are necessarily doing doing it with the wrong intent, they're just doing it the wrong way because they're not listening to their employees about what's most important. They're doing the things that they think is important. And let's face it, our millennials started it, now our Gen Zs. What these younger workers want is different from, well, certainly when I was there, certainly when my parents were there. And yet in some instances, you go into a very traditional organization that's still being run like something from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely. And, and part of um, what I do, you know, in corporate relocation is hear what these transferees are saying, particularly millennials and younger, what they're looking for when they're interviewing or considering a role and relocating their lives. Um, and they are now what we're hearing is, um, you know, when am I going to be interacting with my team? How often is that going to be? And do you have a track for me or when I can, you know, see myself in leadership? And then can you see a track for me of when I can be in Singapore um, in two years or less? Um, they're coming in with demands um, and they want to know that their team and their leaders are going to be nurturing them along the way. So that has a lot to do with um, obviously the personal interaction that they're craving, not just sitting on a tech platform. And number two, the recognition has to be there. Those milestones have to be built in, right? And and from my perspective on the ground, uh, wherever they leave or come to, um, they they want to know that they're just they're uprooting and they know that they're on a track. And I think that has been lacking in past years. Um, so when you say that we're moving more towards an employee economy versus a, you know, versus a customer centric um, economy, I think obviously the customer is still the heart of the business, but without the heartbeat of the employees, we're going nowhere, right? And we, we, we want them to be, it's pivotal to the business, but um, I, I think the employee experience is much more important um, in order to move the business forward anymore. And let's look, let, in the last couple of years, we've had companies uh, shift products, change policies because of employees. So our Gen Zs, the, and again, we brought up our Gen Zs, they're the activist group. Mm -hmm. They're the activist generation. Right. They're not going to take our bullshit. And, and I say that with the nicest thing, but they're really not. I mean, our outdated policies, uh, again, let's right. talk about, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest ones traditional that has been up, turned upside down. So traditional companies never believe that you can work from home because they right. don't control you. You have to be in the office. I got to see you. I got to touch you, feel you. Right. On came virus and all of a sudden everybody's working from home. Guess what? The people that performed really well in the office are performing even better at home the people that sucked in the office, they shouldn't, you shouldn't keep them because they still suck at home. Right. And, and what, what people are having to do is that that is, for our Gen Zs, one of the biggest benefits, flex and being able to work from home. Yes. Just awesome. So you're seeing, they've asked for it, companies have resisted, but now that would be one of the, again, positive elements I think that comes out of what's going on today is that, hey, more people can have flex and work from home. And guess what? It's okay. People don't suddenly, while you're working from home and all of a sudden they're not doing any work, right. they're actually finding more productivity. They're not um, doing the long commutes anymore. They get to spend time with their families or things they like to do. So they're becoming actually healthier. Wellness has been a thing we've talked in business for years, um, but we, we, we've had a really hard time of working out what wellness is in the workplace. Right. Um, wellness is actually best delivered at home. So I, I'm... There's so much that we have to think about. And, you know, even what you said, which is career, 
I find that so many managers don't talk about career because they don't have a position open. So, you know, they're afraid to talk about career with their associates because it means promotion. So therefore, I'm going to shut up. I love Foot Locker. We work with one of the awesome things that they do. Um, Foot Locker, 90 days after you, so you're hired and they are, they are hiring out Gen Zs. They're hiring kids out of high school. 90 days after you pass your onboarding, you can then opt into the leadership program. Wow. Now, think about how cool this is. 60, let's say it's about 60 to 65% of their workforce is in that Gen Z. So you're looking, um, right. you know, 22, I think, is the oldest down. It's in some ways the Starbucks model. That going to you and going, hey, you've come out of high school. You might not have even graduated high school. You've got in here. And by the way, we're going to now, you have now have an option to get into a leadership program. It's a year. All of a sudden, they are now going, wait up. I can, I'm in a leadership program. They're telling their parents, I'm in a leadership program. They're telling their significant, I'm in a, all of a sudden, it gives them value. Now, instead of them hanging out six months, they're now sticking around a year and a half. So the, the footlocker is benefiting because they're keeping people longer. They're right. building bench depth. But what they say at the start of the program is they, listen, when you finish this program, there's actually another leadership program you can go into, but we're not guaranteeing you a promotion. What we are saying is we are going to set you up with skills for the future. And, and you do this little test. And again, people aren't going into malls much right now. But if you go to a mall with a footlocker, you can go around to other stores and you will find people that were trained as leaders and footlockers because all these other brands have realized that footlocker is creating these future leaders right. that they're going to kind of take them. So, but what a wonderful way to attract employees to deal with career development without saying, I have to have a promotion for you. I love that. Well, it's an engagement. It's instilling confidence. It's mm -hmm. instilling, like you said, value and feeling like they're part of something. And then they have a, they do have a future vision for themselves, yes. whether or not they pursue it, it's up to them. But the fact that it's been given to them without them having to go look for it, I think establishes a great um, relationship with the employer to the employee, right? Yeah, and then and, and so now we go back to employee loyalty, employee advocacy. One of the things, right. you know, what you talk, if we're talking young generations, everyone says that they're unloyal. They say that because they turn over. What happens is our millennials and LZs say, listen, if, if I'm not challenged, if I'm not excited, I'm going to go somewhere else. We, back in the day, probably didn't make that choice because we were worried about, gosh, will I get another job? There was a lot of... Sort of angst. This You're trying to build your resume. You're trying yeah. to build your one resume. <laughs> Correct. You, you were told you have to stay at least 10 years with a couple. Right. <laughs> and again, I love it. You know, the kids coming out these days, they say, listen, again, I, I reiterate, they're not dealing with our BS. They're not dealing with our rules that kind of guided us in, and I would say limited us in certain things. So that's saying today, listen, if you're not challenging me, if, I, if you're not interested in my career, if you're not interested in me, I'm going to go elsewhere. Now, the senior managers go, oh, those young people are very disloyal. Oh, my goodness. They're the worst workers ever. No, they're not. You just didn't take care of them. What's really cool is the organizations that I think are winning out there, um, they've won the talent war. They've got the best people. Therefore, they deliver the best customer service and uh, experience. They said, hey, we're going to invest in you. We're going to challenge you. And what the research that I think is so fascinating is if, and it was, if a millennial leaves a job that they felt good at because they felt, hey, this promotion's not there. I'm going to go overseas and I'm going to try a project. They actually replace themselves, which means they'll tell one of their friends, hey, I'm leaving. You should come in and work here because it set me up. Got a two-year window. And now they're starting to see that millennials will come back to the brand. Hey, I've gone over. I've, I've got two years of experience over there. Do you guys want me back? That's a wonderful setup. So organizations have to be a lot more nimble. They've got to be willing to invest in learning and development more, but they can't be afraid to learn, uh, lose people. So creating a learning culture, which is one of the big mechanisms I talk about a lot, is critical, I think, to, to, to company success and everything that they do. How to stand out in the crowd. It used to be that you wanted your product to stand out. Um, now you want your employee experience to stand out. That's right. And it's and interesting that you say that since, um, you know, my, my, uh, 
real estate team is under the umbrella of Keller Williams Realty International. And it's the number one training company. It happens to be in the real estate field. But the whole point is to train people to become business people, to set up themselves for success so that, you know, if they did choose another path, that they would still be able to, you know, lend those skill sets to other things things, right? So I, I love that big world mentality and, you know, being inclusive and transparent about that from the get-go. And I think companies are missing the boat with super high, um, high influential talent by not doing this, right? And, you know, okay. we're only two people. We can't change the entire world ourselves. Oh, I um, think we can't. Just, but we're going to try. What you said, though, was, is really important. It's from the get-go. Here's another area that we found that was interesting that companies aren't doing a good job of. They're not upfront about what they stand for, what they do. Netflix. Everyone, you know, the Netflix was a 140-page PowerPoint that they sent out to the world and everyone was, that's amazing. Well, do you know why Netflix did it? They did it because everyone wanted to come and work for them and they were getting inundated with resumes right. and they're like, okay, this is crazy. Let's make a clear picture of how difficult it is to work for Netflix because not <laughs> everyone is going to be uh, good at Netflix. And this is something that we tell a lot of organizations is not every person who applies for a job is good for you. Not every person will be successful with you. And this has got nothing to do with sexual orientation, color of skin, or any other bias that seems to sit out there. What it is is that certain styles and personalities will just fit better in right. certain roles. And so what I, what I, and again, it goes back to that hiring process is that before they even walk through the door, they should know the expectations of the organization. They should know the type of person they're looking for, the type of person that was being successful. Unfortunately, for them to hear that, the company needs to know it. And, I, and again, another area that they need to invest in is how do our best people how do the people become most successful with us? What What is it that they do? And there's some really great companies out there that map traits, characteristics, and all that. And it's what people have inside of them that ultimately, it again, does determine their success. And by understanding what makes someone's insides and their hearts and souls, their attitudes successful for your organization, probably one of the most important uh, activities or things that companies need to look at. I learned a lot about this when I was working with a high-level executive with a giant media company. He was relocating from Australia to the U.S., and he had more than one offer. And the company that I was working with that had made him one of those offers had just said to him... Um, you know, we need to know right away if you're taking this job, taking this relocation. And um, he, I remember him calling, he told me about this. He called them to ask a little bit more about the relocation benefits and a little bit more about the role that he'd be playing. And they, and the person who took his call said, um, you're just lucky to have our name on your resume. So we need to know in the next 10 minutes if you're taking this job or not, because we have a line behind you. And of course, he did not take that um, and uproot his family from Australia and do that giant move without, he didn't even, that was the impression that he got from the company before he even took the job. So I work a lot in trying to like assuage those concerns because on one hand you're looking at a career track and on the other hand you're like what just happened yeah so it, it's just really interesting how that is still going on even though transparency is becoming more and more rampant thank god yeah. um but that was that was just uh, and it was a, you know it's a giant company still in business today but um apparently that's how they treat people but that's and now you go that's their culture Right. Because that's the hearts and minds. And how right. companies affect the hearts and minds of people is right. the biggest determinant of whether they're going to stick around. A, a, a fascinating stat from, and again, it's a couple of years ago now, is that of all the people that will leave a job this year, that will, will quit and take this year out because 2020 is just, I don't know what it is. Let's say 2019. Half of all people that left the job last year to go somewhere else, quit or that, did so within the first 90 days. Now, think about that. Half of all people left. Why? They got into the job. They looked around and say, wait up. This, this is not isn't what I, what I signed up for. That's it. You've got <laughs> right. it. And again, and so think, and then, the, and then your company would go, well, that's all right. I've got someone right behind. But the cost of hiring them, Very maybe locating them, putting them through those first 90 days and missed opportunities is a cost to the company. 
And it's a significant one. And that's why I'm saying so much. And when I do look at culture, the hiring process, the orientation, the onboarding, how they start out really does determine their success. So um, I love what you said in one of your podcast episodes, um, get behind your people and they will deliver. Yeah. So let's circle that around to inspiring teams on, you know, once you're, so let's assume we're, our culture is getting there. We're, we're, we're coming together. We're gelling. Um, so talk about the impact on the customer experience and, and what, and how we're inspiring. I mean, we all have, we all know about these companies who are doing well at that, right? So, you know, Zappos is a customer experience company. They just happen to sell shoes. Um, yeah. It's the easiest thing to do. Um, Amazon has, you know, you can return all day long. <laughs> yeah. um, they make it very easy. So what other companies have you been working with that, you know, you've had that success in those areas? Uh, actually, I, and again, I, I have an experience kind of in, in this lockdown mode that I think is there. So uh, the company's Dyson. I think everyone knows. Vacuum cleaners. Yeah. Um, Did that and, today. <laughs> well, I, I, I I was just going to say, I did not know they did hair dryers until my okay. wife would go, do you know who has the greatest hair dryer in the world? I go, who? She goes, Dyson. I go, the vacuum guys? Yeah. She goes, the greatest hair dryer. And I go, okay. Now, Dyson has great products. But what sets it apart and why she turned to Dyson was we had a vacuum. Um, something went wrong with it. She called up. She said, I got a price. She goes, I'm going to go through the process. Had no expectations about uh, the customer service or that. She calls up and says, you know, I got a problem with it. First of all, she says, one, they were the nicest people in the world. But then the process, the journey that went through, first of all, it was they kind of diagnosed what was online. And she's like, and they're like, you know what? It's going to cost too much for you to send it back to us. So that was the first thing. Then they said, we're going to find someone in the local area that can fix it. We, we'll have someone, one of our licensed people. So, oh, that makes it easy. Fantastic. So they found that quarterback and says, yep, we've found someone that two miles away from you. Are you able to drop it off today? And she was like, you know what? I'm kind of busy. She goes, great. We'll set that up. We'll come and get the vacuum, get it fixed and bring it back to you. She was blown away. And, and so, she's, so she starts to go, you know, Dyson, Dyson. Now all of a sudden it's the hairdryer. All of a sudden you go, they have Great product. So, you know, I go back to my four Ps, product, place, process, people. They got the product worked out. They got their process worked out. They made it Clearly. so easy. Yeah. The people were so French. She, she just, she still talks about, it. she goes, I'm the Dyson forever. And what I, what I think is so important is because their products are so good, I don't think she's buying another hairdryer in the near future. We don't have to buy another vacuum. So it's not about the traditional sense of loyalty. Even though I'm sure over the lifetime there might be a couple. But the fact that she has told everyone about it is why advocacy today, I think, is the single most important thing that companies should be looking for. That she's told friends, she's gone online, she's done everything. Her her that experience, I don't know how much value they would have got out of it, but it would tell you it was worth a heck of a lot more than that uh, vacuum. So that's an example of them understanding all the areas of their product and kind of putting that together. And again, I go back to BMW before. I mean, product, place, process, people. They had the best product or arguably the best product. They had a great product. Their processes, they were a little long. Going, you know, spending two hours to buy a car is crazy. But so they, they shortened the process. They tightened it up. The place, they reimagined their dealerships to have coffee bars, snack bars, and all of that. And then they were willing to invest in the culture of their people to turn that experience around. What they were able to do is shift their JD Power service and sales scores went up. They started now where they were slipping and eroding. They've now fought back. And so you start to see those components come together really nicely and say, it's not just about one or the other, but the one that often gets forgotten about is the people. And that may be the most important thing. Right. And what I love about your example um, with Dyson is that Dyson, clearly the leadership was um, empowering them with information and getting them behind the product 
and then getting them excited about how they can serve the customer who then benefits from all of this, right? Because I'm like your wife. I mean, I'm a slave to Dyson. So if that happened to me, I, it, I blast it all over the place and call everybody I know. Um, and I'm still working on convincing a few people. I mean, it is a hefty price tag, but it's worth it because you know all of this about in the event something that happens, you know that there's customer service there with the experience. And, and I think, and it's, I think it's huge. I think, I'm not sure if you remember, in our Bain and Company, in, what, in 2015, they did the uh, Elements of the Value Pyramid. And it came out in Harvard Business Review in 2016. And what they would do is they said they, they were able to map all the values that consumers really buy into. Um, and there was 30-something, and they mapped them into four categories. It was interesting. Out of, out of all the values across any industry they would apply, and the more of those values you hit, the more satisfied your customers would be. And I think it's a really important piece is that, I mean, uh, uh, Harley Davidson says the best, you know, the more you know about your customers, the easier it is to take care of them. John Russell said it. Um, if you know in, about your customers and what they value in you, then you make sure you do those really, really well. And as a result of that, you can put a high price tag on it. It used to be considered high price tag was a luxury item. No, no, no. The luxury item or the high price tag is the best valued item, which means if you do more things and cover more of the values that are important to me, you save me time, you've got great quality, um, you're reliable, you're friendly, all of these things, you go, wow, you package this up, people will keep doing business with you. And I, it goes back to you know, your customer experience strategy. Do you know the great moments in the journey that are absolutely critical to the customer? Do you know what they value most in that moment? Is it being convenient? Is it efficiency? Is it wow? Um, and then are you able to apply it? And people often say, well, you know what? Creating all these great moments costs a lot of money. The BMW's piece, so BMW, the greatest moment when someone buys a new car is the handover of the keys. That for a consumer, money because of the cost. They've just probably spent, outside of a house, maybe one of their highest valued items right. ever. This is a big moment. Like, oh my gosh. You know, when we looked at it, we, we were going around car dealerships. It was, oh yeah, can you pick up your keys from the receptions? Thanks very much. You're like, uh. Mm -hmm. We started to go, one of the moments that was absolutely critical is the handover. So what did they do? And again, um, uh, BMW has their little showrooms they put in. What they did is they put a cover on the car. So now when you go in and do it, they do this unveiling moment, a little That's bit of awesome. fear, a little bit of that. But do you know what? It makes the moment memorable. Right. And, you know, I go back to, you know. It's a celebration. Yeah, it, but, it's, but they create memories. And I always think Daniel right. Kahneman's stuff about memories and understanding that really what we're all in the business of, regardless of the product, regardless of the thing, it's to create memories. And you can do it by having a great service call. You can do it by a pickup. You can do it just by the fact that you unveil something a little more dramatically. That's what companies have to be willing to do. And if they are willing to do it for their customer, then understand that same unveiling, surprise and delight goes for the employees as well. I love it. I love this. And, and this is you know one of the cornerstones of our business. We make every milestone um, exciting. And then, of course, when, every, when we hand over the keys at closing, um, when buying or selling a house, we're very... We're, we're very dramatic about it um, because it's a, it's a milestone in your life. So we want it to be fun and memorable. Um, but before we go, we have a few more minutes. I want to talk a little bit about Resort Rescue. <laughs> you know, I love that show. And I want to talk, to, how, how did that come to be? And um, what was your experience with that? Uh, gosh, it was crazy. Literally, um, a friend of mine reached out and says, hey, uh, they live in LA. Hey, a producer's looking for a hotel person. Uh, to do a show. Um, and they're meeting all these hoteliers and they're really boring and they're kind of like very limited in what you're doing. Um, I've heard you swear up a storm. Do you want to go? Would you talk to them? I talked to them. I did a, you do a, you do a Zoom, you talk and you just talk about experiences, what you believe in and all that. The next day they had a crew out. We were doing testing in parking lots and all that. And two weeks later, I got this job. I, again, no aspirations to get on television. Um, Again, I was so fortunate for a couple of years. We got to we got to go to little resorts. First of all, I got to go to parts of the, the this country that I never would have gone to. Um, going to little resorts, and of course, you know, 
reality television at its best. Um, There is nothing real in reality. Right. Uh, And yet I was determined to kind of do that. And and what what was amazing is you'd go around and, you know, I've run some of the biggest, uh, some huge hotels in the world. And you go to these little hotels and you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is you could do this in your sleep. But what was really cool is you'd get talking to the owners. And, I mean, you'd have owners who, um, I remember a couple. They were, he was in his 80s, she was in the late 70s um, uh, in uh, Colorado. They were talking about their property. They bought this as they thought, you know, I'm buying a small hotel. This is my retirement dream. This is, this is it. They hadn't taken a vacation in 40 years. Um, and, and listen, they were awesome. But, man, they were tired. You know, I went with another hotel, had a, a, a war veteran who, had, you know, inherited the hotel and um, with his PTSD, it was stressing him out. It was turning him into something he didn't want to. Uh, there was all these stories. And it, at the end of the day, it was about, yeah, trying to get the resorts back on track. But it was ended up being just about people getting people back on track. And I always go, that's really at the heart of hospitality. It's the heart of everything we do. You know what? Again, right now in the world, you know, being human. Uh, you know, treating others with kindness and, 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 and really listening. And, you know, so that was what it was. And, you know, the, the thing that you do as a host of a television show is you just got to make sure you ask good questions. That's right. And I, and I, I say this, I, I speak a lot about this. One of the most important things as a manager or an owner or anything you have is remember, always be curious. Don't be afraid to ask the dumb questions. One, because if you're not curious, you're grandiose. Grandiose means we know it all. I meet too many people that think they know it all. Nobody knows anything in the world right now. Um, in Resort Rescue, I had to just ask questions. And when people start to unveil and start to pull the layers back, you find what the heart of the problem is. The heart of the problem wasn't necessarily the resort needed fixing. It was that the person needed something that they didn't have a support system for. And I thought I think it's quite apt about what's happening in the world right now. Listen, everybody, be curious. Just go ask everybody how they're doing. Go ask them how you can help. Be generous right now. As I said, it's amazing why we make an assumption that everyone's just fine because maybe they're doing, they own a little hotel or they do things. People aren't. And uh, so, again, asking good questions. But, again, we also had a lot of fun on the show. Um, It was crazy what we caught some of the guests doing. Oh, I bet. I did catch one snippet when um, a guest was – you were watching a guest – Cross the courtyard with her luggage and it fell into the pool that was didn't look yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, so, I mean, so and again, it was silly because there was this the, the the resort was spread out, so you had to walk across this parking lot and then there was this yeah. kind of game area, not cool through the pool. Yeah. So you're sending people there, the pool lights were out, and so uh. the light was out, and you're like, it's something so silly to cause something so dramatic. That's um, right. But that's just that we make these assumptions um, and it's always in the detail. But that was it was a fun couple of years with a fun group of people. And, you know, as I said, I, I learned some stuff out and I got to go to some pretty cool parts of the world. So very blessed. It does sound like fun. I, I just want to thank you so much for spending this hour with us. We really appreciate your time. Love your insight. I know you and I could talk for hours about this. <laughs> I'll come back again anytime. There's plenty of stories, but I really appreciate you as well. You're doing some great work out there. Thanks for bringing us to everyone. Absolutely. And to everyone out there, thank you so much for listening. I'm proud to share this show with you as these stories prioritize the customer experience as a legit business strategy and reminding us that no matter what business you're in, whether it's uh, hospitality, real estate, consulting, the, the customer experience really should always be the heart of the business. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone.